0: you're still going to have a ton of innovation here, and you're going to have a ton of the people that are innovating in those other markets have come from here or be trained here. But the the money, as you said, flows pretty easily. So I think once the innovation and the companies start getting started in different geographies, money
1: will follow. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. (sighs) Ah.
3: So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
1: Dave Welsh from KKR is in charge of a lot of money. $711 $711 million. That's a huge fund. <laughs> I
0: guess it all depends on sort of scope and where you're looking. I work at KKR, so we manage $200 billion. So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, you're, so you're just the startup guy. You're, yeah, you're exactly. new, the startup guy in the big firm. Exactly. <laughs> Putting in your dues, and then someday exactly. you'll really, you'll handle a lot of money. Exactly. This week on Sand Hill Road, Dave Welsh and KKR's Next Generation Technology Growth Fund. Before we get back to the interview, a bit of background. This is not traditional venture capital, not in the way we've been covering it on this podcast. KKR is involved in growth equity funds. Venture capital hands out money very early to nascent companies, high risk, high reward. Growth equity comes in later when the company is well-established and making profits, a safer but far more expensive way of generating returns.
0: Yeah, so we're coming in a little bit later stage, so we're not taking on technology risk. We don't try to pretend that we know sort of clairvoyantly where technology is headed. There are great people, many of which you've had on the show, that are really thoughtful about way out there, where is technology headed? What we think more about is, if a technology is in market and it's being used, um how can we work with a company to sort of take that company from doing well often in a local geography or maybe just you know one area maybe one product line and really help collaboratively scale them up to take that that offering or the that platform to uh, a much broader geography and sometimes into new product areas so collaboratively working with sort of existing management teams to take something that's already in market but scale it up much larger so that it can really become a de facto standard in the new technology globally over time.
1: I'm going to mention a couple companies that I mean only as an analogy to understand the question. When you look at several companies that are in the same space, Mm -hmm. one of them is Lyft, the other is Uber, one Mm -hmm. of them is Burger King, the other is McDonald's, Mm -hmm. one of them is Holiday Inn, Mm -hmm. the other one is Marriott Mm -hmm. and so on. How do you choose which one? I'm interested in this space. I think it's a space that, you know, I think we're going to make some money in. How do you pick? It's not necessarily going to be the market leader. Yeah. But sometimes it will be. Yeah. Uh, How do you pick which in those spaces are the ones that you're gonna bet the money on.
0: Yeah. So I think when you have multiple companies playing in a space, it does come down to a number of factors, but it probably starts usually with the management team and sort of alignment of interest with management team and existing investors. You know, do we really see the world the same way, the way that you would build a business? what are the aspirations for that company over time are you aligned and sort of where things would head and do you have confidence that if things don't go where everybody thinks they're going to if there's stumbles that you will approach those in a similar way and in our way it's it's really trying to be collaborative and transparent you know not finger pointing or you know getting upset because something didn't go exactly the way that you you know maybe thought it was going to but rather you know looking at an issue and sort of trying to resolve it together and so when we're looking at companies that's probably the very first thing we do if we can't get that alignment looking almost at anything else starts to become you know really not meaningful to us then you start looking at things like how much confidence do we have that you know the company that we're looking at is the one that that we think has sustained you know advantage in some way to continue to dominate um, a market and and so if there's two players and you know one of them is sort of in their own way kind of cat- out in the way that they've you know built the organization or built the sales channels if you will into something you know that would probably attract us less than a company that say is looking to build out and has put in the building blocks to be able to scale much more greatly over time um, and so so those are some of the things that we we look at and then often we'll look at you know things like do we have experiences with the current investors and have we kind of seen the way that they've done things and the way that they've thought about it and and are we confident that we'll be, you know, good collaborative partners with them, you know, over time. So those are some of the things that we look at if there's sort of a situation which there often is of multiple companies in the particular sector that we're we're investing
1: in. I've heard that over and over it's oftentimes it's not the idea it's the team. Yeah. Ideas are easy. Really good teams are hard.
0: Yeah, I, I would caveat that a little bit. I think early ideas are hard, you know, but once an idea has matured to some level, you know, I think then the idea becomes a little bit more obvious, then the team is incredibly important. And I think, you know, teams and the way that teams can, you know, ultimately change the trajectory of a business or work their way around issues when they, you know, come, um, th- that's actually, you know, really important as well. <laughs>
1: Companies are staying uh, private longer. Uh, I assume that delays your exit. Uh, Why do you think that is?
0: Yeah, it does. um, It it delays the exit. I'll I'll get get back to that. We actually think it's probably a good thing. I think the reason is you know if it's it's all originally emanated out of the Sarbanes Oxley requirements and things of you know sort of making companies um, that were going public have, you know, greater reporting requirements, and therefore it was more expensive. What companies then found was, in fact, staying private longer actually allowed the businesses to become more predictable, so that when they went public, the chances that they would have some really bad earnings event that just, you know, sort of put the company in a really tough spot became less and less. Um, And so, I think being able to continue to evolve business models, make some mistakes, you know, sort of um, sometimes shift while you're in the private markets is sort of a nice thing to have, because uh, those things are hard to do in the public markets. So I think a lot of businesses have said, you know what, let's not rush this. Let's you know give our, chance, our company a chance to mature, give ourselves the opportunity, if we do, to make a couple stumbles in the private markets, and get ourselves to a scale and to a repeatability of, of things that we can know that when we get to the public markets, the chances that we really have a stumble in front of everybody's eyes, become much less. It does delay, obviously, the exit of things. Um, but one of the things about our firm, and that I, you know, have learned, having only been at KKR three years, I did a lot of diligence before I joined about what are the things that the firm really cares about, and long-term building companies for long-term and long-haul results, long-term relationships are really important to, to our firm. And so, the notion that you might hold a company for a year, or two, three more than you might have going back, you know, ways that doesn't bother us. You know, if you think you're creating real value in the business, um, often there's no better place to be investing your time and money than in a company, you know, well, that you are just continuing to accrue more value to. So that, that, that's okay for us.
1: Now that said, darn good time to go public. It is. I mean,
0: so, you know, clearly we're seeing the public markets opening back up. You see a big pipeline of of businesses going public. Uh, And I think it's the natural evolution of a lot of buildup of underlying value in the private markets the last four or five years. Um, And so, I think we've seen a few of the, you know, obviously larger IPOs coming. I think we'll see uh, many more here in the coming months. Um, and I think you'll start to see a few companies you know, testing the public markets a little earlier than some of the companies. I do think, though, that this notion of kind of you know, relatively subscaled companies going public, I don't think you'll see very many of those um, you know, going forward. I think people have recognized that's a dangerous you know, path to tread. And so I think um, you'll see these companies staying private longer uh, in general.
1: Give me a couple more examples of uh, companies in your portfolio that you're excited by.
0: Yeah, so um, in, we've, we've got a nice portfolio of mix between the U.S. and Europe, um, and many of them sort of cross over. So we've got Lyft, as you mentioned. We have a very interesting business based out of Europe called Get Your Guide. Think of it as all things travel, not air, not hotel, um, not rental car. So you go and you travel someplace. It allows you to have the an experience. So sort of what you might show up and you know. High a concierge to go have you find a tour guide or, you know, have go find an experience doing something. They've created an online marketplace to clear for that. And it's actually taken off and is becoming a very, very, you know, big business over in Europe. So uh, really exciting um, two-sided marketplace that's really, you know, scaled. Um, So that's sort of on the consumer side. On the Enterprise side, we do a lot of things that are focused on B2B software. Um, One area in particular is is security software. So we've got a very interesting business called Darktrace that is the application of machine learning and artificial intelligence um, into the network security um, area. And they've really were, what we like so much about them, you know, years ago, four or five years ago, when a lot of people were sort of spinning out the words AI and ML and buzzwords, you know, we said, well, how do you take those technologies and really apply them effectively to a problem statement? And if you look the other side, the people at Darktrace that started that business said, we're going to take AI and ML and apply it to a really big problem statement, which is security. And they've been really, you know, successful at doing that and growing very, very rapidly in, in, in doing that. So, those are a couple of examples on, on on either side. The the other business that we invested in recently that I really like is a, a business called OneStream. I like it for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is um, it's a business based out of outside of Detroit, Michigan, and it's a group of guys and women that were at Oracle um, and had worked at uh, a division of Oracle called Hyperion which was a big software business in the uh, fin- in the financial software area. Think of software for the, the office of the CFO. Um, and they basically all decided uh, that, that they wanted to create a new product in that space. And they wanted to create it, you know, sort of where they were from, which was all outside in a town called Rochester, Michigan. And so they, you know, created this company in sort of a very unlikely place. And it has become sort of the new standard for this whole what's called corporate performance management or office of the CFO um, software. And it's it's really, it's, it's interesting for two reasons. One, you get to see this sort of Silicon Valley culture sort of spreading into mainstream America. Um, and you also get to see, you know, how many great entrepreneurs and engineers there are now in places that aren't the Silicon Valley or, you know, some other tech hubs. And I think that's going to be a trend. We believe that's a trend that you're going to see significantly, you know, continue over the years. So.
1: Well, and you had mentioned Clear, Clearwater, Florida, Detroit, yeah. Michigan. Yeah. I am fascinated in an age in which money can move across the world, where you can send PayPal funds or text somebody some money on a different continent, that being in Silicon Valley and near Sand Hill Road is still weirdly important to get money now, it is yeah. changing, and you're yeah. obviously you're leading the forefront of yeah. that. Why is that? That and it, when we can move money, you know, by text message, that Detroit, Michigan is having trouble getting uh, uh, venture funds.
0: Yeah, and I would say, and you're right. I mean, I I, I would say um, it's there was a very large um, concentration of you know both talent and. Resources and they kind of self reinforced sure. each other over the years here. And so, in some ways, you remember years ago. Uh, I think someone, I think it was Sequoia, said, we just we wouldn't invest in anything. We couldn't ride our bicycle to or there was some quote of that you know, sort of ilk. And I think years ago, it sort of made sense because, you know, really in terms of new engineering ideas and uh, things that you know, really were going to move the dial from a technology perspective, it really did mostly all happen around here. And therefore, you know, the more capital came, it came right here and it's self-reinforced. I think, you know, so so I think the challenge has been for companies that are outside of this ecosystem, for them to get the visibility inside of the broader, you know, sort of tech ecosystem. And, and that is what's starting. I mean, that's clearly, you know, we are not alone in the notion of, hey, let's look for businesses that have been started in other places. I think what you're going to start seeing is as companies of that ilk start maturing and, and going public or being acquired for large numbers, that story of hey, everything big and innovative is just here in the Silicon Valley or in Boston or a couple of tech hubs, is pretty quickly going to start you know you know spinning out. Now that doesn't mean, and I would say the other part of our thesis is, you're still going to have a ton of innovation here, and you're going to have a ton of the people that are innovating in those other markets. Have come from here or be trained here. I think that's true, right? And so you'll sort of see that. But the the money, as you said, flows pretty easily. So I think once the innovation and the companies start getting started in different geographies,
1: money will follow. And I and I think that trend is going to accelerate yeah. very quickly here. I was yeah. these are Bloomberg numbers from PitchBook. Yeah. Uh, when we talk about tech hubs, Austin, Atlanta, Salt Lake City, you mentioned Boston. They were saying Austin slightly more than one percent of last year's venture capital money was going into Austin, which surprised Hmm. me. Uh, Same for Atlanta and Salt Lake City, less than one percent. It will grow. How do places that are even farther outside of those tech hubs, the Peoria, Illinois, how Illinois? I'm from Illinois. (laughs) Why did I mispronounce Illinois? Uh, Peoria, Illinois um how do those companies get noticed by you or other firms if they are in those places yeah i think it does take some effort on their part right i mean so so part
0: of it is going to be you see things like exact target that was started in indianapolis and you you know and indianapolis was not necessarily thought of as a tech hub you know at the time all of a sudden that gets on the radar screen at some level and people start making trips through indianapolis to see things The flip side is businesses that are getting started in Indianapolis have to make a bit of an outbound effort to actually go to conferences, to go to you know events that may be held in San Francisco, in Boston, in these places, and sort of you know so it's a two way street in that way. But I will tell you, it doesn't take a lot of sort of commercial success for people on the investing side to pretty quickly start seeking out, because it's such a competitive market. We are always looking for what might be our edge to find a great company that isn't just right here in our backyard. Because right here in our backyard, you're almost for sure going to run into a number of other firms looking to invest in something. So if you start to see a few things coming out of another region, you will see investors start to follow to that region. I think it starts in more major you know, city areas that have universities that have are now producing engineers. And so, you know, the the... And then it just sort of migrates out of that over time. The person that was in, you know, Chicago, maybe then goes to Peoria and starts something there because it's you know more cost effective to start there than Chicago. And you know, you sort of you know migrate that way. It will t- take time, but I in the you know fifteen plus years I've been doing this, I've definitely seen this proliferation starting to be more and more pronounced. And I and I think it's an uh, you know sort of as they say, horses out of the barn on this one. This trend is not going to stop. Way too much engineering talent being start. Um, educated in lots of other areas for people not to take advantage of that and start businesses or grow businesses in places other than, you know, just here in the in the Silicon Valley.
1: I was in Des Moines, Iowa recently, and I was struck by how cool it was. Yeah, Uh, you know, uh, cafes and bike shops and 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 art festivals and things. And one of the things that one of the theories anyway that somebody gave me was used to be kids from Des Moines would flee to Boulder, Colorado or to San Francisco or but they can't afford to anymore. And so they're making their own hometown cool. That's right. And I think you're seeing that in Indianapolis as well.
0: You are. Yeah. Lots of places like that. I think even, you know, this place, Rochester, uh, Michigan, which is outside of Detroit, it's a cool little town. Like it's a great place as a young person to, you know, go and and start a career and so on. You can buy a home relatively early. They've got, you know, so I, I agree with all of that. And I do think I'm a, product. My, my mom was from, you know, Indiana, you know, r- you know, rural Indiana. And so, you know, I vastly believe that the work ethic and everything that sort of permeated through those regions, when you start applying it to startups, I mean, people are going to see a huge benefit, you know, of, of that. I mean, there is, as you know, there's a notion here that's a bit troubling, which is there's been a lot of willingness for tech talent in the Bay Area in particular to jump ship to ship to ship to ship you know, if if something does, and I think you see a lot less of that in some of these other areas where people are a little bit more willing to say, you know what, I'm going to stick it out. You know, even if things aren't aren't going well. And I think that's a really
1: healthy thing for a lot of these companies to take advantage of. So, what excites you? What's what's new and interesting out there that you think I, th- I think this is going to go somewhere. Well I think it's the the convergence of all of these technologies of the last
0: 25 30 years now all coming to a point where they're really impacting traditional industries in a huge way so you have you know sort of compute power getting to this level where everybody's got a supercomputer in their hand you've got connectivity across the world in terms of you know high bandwidth that even you know most places now on a wireless basis you've got storage capacity that's getting you know sort of bigger and bigger um, on on a cost-effective basis. And what we see at KKR is we look at our other industry groups, our non-tech industry groups, where we do a lot of investing. You ask them the question of, so what are the things that you think are the biggest opportunities and risk factors for you? And almost inevitably, the CEOs of those businesses will say technology, right? And that, I think, is where the opportunity lies. Like We have gone from technology sort of being an investment area and a set of companies that we sort of just focused on in almost our own microcosm to now where technology is going to play a hugely impactful role in sort of almost every industry you can imagine. And to me, figuring out how do you, you know, sort of get in front of those cross-sections and say, how can this set of technologies really innovate you know, that in- industrial area, that place, that legacy area where you thought maybe technology would never go, and you know, find the technologies that can do that and potentially invest in those? I think that's really interesting. You know, I think that's what gives us an advantage over time.
1: Dave Welsh in charge of KKR's next generation technology growth fund. Next week on Sand Hill Road, John Verionis at Unusual Ventures will tell us what's so unusual. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes at PressHereTV.com.